0: Flourishing Education, the podcast where I share the powerful imperfectly perfect conversations with disruptors of the education system in the UK and beyond. I would really like to encourage you to take a listen and see what's possible as I ask the question, how can we change the way we educate and parent our children and young people so that they can truly become flourishing curious Lifelong learners and young adults. I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I've enjoyed recording them and creating them. Please do not hesitate to connect with me on LinkedIn, Fabian Vells, and/or and/or on Twitter at FlourishingHE. And please let me know what's your favorite episode or favourite part of the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you, and in the meantime, I truly hope you are thriving and flourishing, wishing you a fabulous day wherever you are in the world. Hello and welcome to another powerful, imperfectly perfect conversation for the Flourishing Education podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be sharing a conversation with Dr. Tom Markham. Say a very warm welcome to the podcast, Tom.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, Fabian. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation.
0: Yes I'm very um, grateful that you are here and for the listeners as often I have already had a bit of a sneak preview because Tom and I have had a conversation before obviously organizing this podcast and as always I think you are in for a treat so (laughs) it's exciting. So rather than me introducing you would you tell us a little bit about you about your career so far or thus far Um, and perhaps what you're currently working on?
1: My career has, uh, for the last 25 years or so, has followed a fairly straightforward path, more or less. I've been focused on project-based learning. I was fortunate enough to become involved with project-based learning in the 90s, when it was first being practice before it was really popular, but was being practiced. And I was fortunate enough to be in a school where uh, that was possible. And we had really great PBL projects even then in high school. And then uh, I went to work for the Buck Institute for Education, now known as PBL Works. And I was one of the original uh authors of their book on project-based learning and which really launched project-based learning uh, in the US and then into UK, Australia, China and now PBL is really practiced worldwide in most systems of education or using some form of project-based learning. So that's where my focus has been traveling to schools, working with teachers, working with school leaders, and thinking about using PBL as a tool for sort of leveraging change in the school system. So that's been a big part of my journey for the last two decades or so. Uh, More recently, uh, I have been focusing on how we can use projects for social impact and environmental regeneration. And that's really my current interest. So I do that in several ways. One, as I work with schools, uh, I'm encouraging teachers to work with students on meaningful social impact projects. So I believe the highest and best use of project-based learning is to engage young people in meaningful problem solving, focused on problems that matter, or what I call doing projects that matter, as opposed to using PBL as just another clever way to teach your curriculum without lecturing. And that's oftentimes what PBL becomes. It's just kind of a a fun way to do learning. But the topics and the outcomes are really the same. And of course, that's still controlled by the testing and curriculum (laughs) regimen we have. So I have been working a long time to help uh, teachers break out of that, but even more so in the last couple of years, because I think... Uh, I'm doing projects. For example, I work quite a bit with Australian schools. We're doing projects on equality. Uh, we're doing projects on sustainability. We're doing pro- teachers are doing projects on uh, designing games for a positive future to have a positive impact on their peers. Uh, I'm working with a school in Sydney, all girls' school, and they're doing women's empowerment projects. How do you develop women influencers for positive good? How do you look at women leaders in the world and see what they're doing, bringing to the world? So that's that's of the most interest to me. And then I'm taking that. I'm also taking that outside of school because I think that school is still way too limiting in terms of what it allows teachers and students to accomplish we are still caught in this uh, vise of the curriculum testing uh, as, as, as a way of measuring what we do in school. And that frankly is the greatest impediment, in my opinion, to having great education. So I'm working on a couple of things that are uh, hoping to develop, we don't know. Uh, one is called BioYouth. We'd like to, uh, I'm working with partners, we'd like to develop a system where young people uh let's say 16 to 18 can work on regeneration and uh, bio bio, bio rene- regeneration projects projects that have to do with the environment regeneration uh, sustainable agricultural reforestation uh, water and air issues because I think there there's a large number of, of youth around the world who are really waiting to have a way to do that. And they don't really have a great avenue now. So bio youth is one of my uh, interests. I'm also working on uh, easy solutions to planting trees and reforestation and uh, interested in developing an educational arm for that. So students everywhere can be involved in tree planting, in the narrow sense, but also helping themselves and others in their community become actually engaged in the climate emergency. Because the largest problem right now is not that we don't know what to do, it's that we're not doing it. It's a mindset shift. And uh, to me, the, maybe the climate psychology question is the biggest. Why? How do we get people to understand they're in the midst of an emergency and act? Accordingly, so those are my current interests. Uh, along with, uh, I have some other interests. On, uh, I'm writing a book called "Allowing Genius," which is I feel like there's too many impediments to helping young people develop their full. I don't I don't like to use the term full potential because nobody knows what anyone's potential actually is, but allowing them the full freedom to develop whoever they can become and however they can contribute so that's those are probably my interests at the moment
0: amazing so the first question i have as a as a linguist and someone who likes to start with with clarity in terms of what we mean by different words and things i'm thinking with Uh, my the audience of the podcast in mind which tends to be mums and teachers roughly my age so you know slightly longer younger slightly older so 35 55 in terms of age so those mums for example teachers would have heard about project-based learning but mums may not have, other than what their children may have or, or may or may not have told them about project-based learning. So could we start with that, with you giving us, giving me, the, the listeners, uh, an overview of what you mean by uh, project-based learning, you know, PBL, um, and why it's so, so relevant and important, you know, in terms of change and, and like you said, enabling young people to really tap into you know, who they truly are, their genius.
1: Well, I realized quite a number of years ago that project-based learning actually mirrors the way we learn in life. So we encounter a problem, a challenge, something we need to solve, and then we go about in some way solving that Problem or challenge, either by figuring it out or reading something or asking somebody or doing some research. And then we come up with a solution and we show somebody what we've done and share it. That's a simple description of what project based learning is. That's the way all of us learn from when we first are four years old learning to tie our shoes to meaningful problems as we go through life challenge, solution, test challenge, test, solution, share. That's what project-based learning is in its simplest form. It's actually quite straightforward. It's the idea of presenting students with a meaningful challenge. Now, all of this has details behind it, but a meaningful challenge and allowing them the time to dive into that meaningful challenge and bringing to bear on that challenge whatever resources they need, which can certainly include, what the teacher knows and can share with them, what they can do on research, what they can learn from each other. It's often done in small team-based environments. And as they move through this process of, basically it's a design process. They move through testing hypotheses, coming up with solutions, sharing the solutions, and then finally presenting their work. And in project-based learning, we particularly emphasize sharing their work within an, an audience outside of school. Because when you, this is not about sharing it by standing up in front of the class. And if you've ever been in the classroom and, and witnessed that you have 20 teams of students who get up and speak for five minutes each. And by the 10th team, everybody's half asleep. I mean, more powerful presentation, showcase, presentation of learning kinds of activities that really uh, I'll use this term, they force students to perform and, and challenges and perform at a higher level. And so it's an important component of project-based learning to do these public presentations. It's not just because it's a nice thing to do. It actually changes the physiology of, of young people as it does for people of any age who have to perform. You you know, you, now you don't want to challenge to the point they pass out and faint, but you want to challenge to the point where they do their best work and show their best side. So that's what project-based learning is about. So uh, that's that's obviously runs uh, almost diametrically opposite to the traditional school system where we deliver the information and the kids sit in rows and receive this information and then hand back that information, usually on a test. And if they hand back the information in a form that's reasonably close to what the teacher presented to them, they get a good grade. So we're not looking for that in project-based learning, we're looking for a little more of creative application of the mind <laughs> to come up with uh, really creative solutions and interesting solutions. And when students go through that process, they love it. When it's successfully designed, now there's some tricks to successfully designing a project, but when you do, you get outcomes where the kids are very bright, awake, satisfied, happy. They come through that learning experience thinking, "Wow, this is what learning should feel like. What it looks like. I love this." Now, the downsides for the moms sometimes is that, uh, well, where's where's the where are the grade traditional grades so they can get to university? This is always a big one. Uh, are they really learning anything because they're solving problems? But are they really learning mathematics or are they really learning history or really learning facts? Uh, because we associate learning with factual retention. And the answer is there's plenty of room to include that, but it's not the predominant outcome you're looking for. And the reason it's not the predominant outcome you're looking for is because as the world has shifted, all that information is now available on demand. And we haven't quite caught up to that, Uh, We're still trying to control the flow of information to young people, because if we control the flow of information, then we can control the testing and the certification process, which is what we still like to do. And that's, of course, what is built in through all the K-12 and university system. So it's a tough one to crack that system. But I think eventually we're moving towards a more personalized world in which students really have the opportunity to learn in different pathways. And that's going to cause some angst because amongst the mums, because it means that there probably aren't going to be, in the end, standardized outcomes. There's going to be a whole lot of people coming through an educational experience, and they're going to look a little bit different, meaning some of them are going to know more about other things than some do, and vice versa. So that breaks down our whole standardized system, and that's the reason it's taking a long time to transform our school system.
0: Yes. And as a product of a Franco-British education system who, you know, someone who worked in the system and believed in it, uh, you know, the last 18 months for me have been really transformational in that sense, because I have truly had to let go of a lot of the paradigms that I, I'll be honest, I didn't really question as such, you know, a Little bit, but not very much. And it's only since I've been really exploring with you know individuals, disruptors, trailblazers like yourself that i just suddenly realized how much I, or how little I was actually challenging in the system. Um, and perhaps the reason why I decided that in the end I couldn't go back to my full time position and, and job, you know, at university. Um, and so what I love about what you're describing, you know, the, the giving. Uh, uh, a topic I, I, I wonder you know is that I, I assume it's young people who choose what the project is or are they is that being chosen by but if it's in a school by the teacher um, how, how does that work because in my in my head you know my, my son is self-directed and obviously what what I if it was going to do something like that I would imagine that it would go no, I wanna look at something specifically myself. I don't really want you to choose it for me. Um, so would you would you be able to tell us a bit more about what that looks like?
1: One of the challenges of implementing project-based learning is it completely mirrors the way the world works these days, meaning nothing is clear and nothing is either or, everything is both and. So when I answer that question, it's a both and. Sometimes students, Uh, drive the project theme. Sometimes the teachers drive the project theme. Sometimes it's a partnership and a discussion. There's a number of ways into it. That's good in terms of voice, what they call voice and choice, which is an important element of project-based learning, but it puts quite a bit of pressure on teachers to be able to handle that uncertainty and to sort of read their class and be able to work with students that way to really facilitate that so that you get to a good problem to be solved. That's, that's a, a fairly high level skill, and it's not a skill that teachers are generally trained for, and it's actually a skill that some teachers can't acquire. It's, it's just too difficult for them. So that's what uh, retards the growth of PBL, but it can be both. Increasingly, I think we're moving in the direction of more student voice and projects. That's sort of just part of the general uh, direction that education is taking and and the direction, general direction, frankly, that society as a whole is taking where everybody has a voice. So voice is becoming very important in our society and and, and that's happening with students as well. But there are a variety of ways of doing it. Another problem associated with this is teachers sometimes don't understand what the role is in project-based learning. The students are actually supposed to be doing all the work, Uh, not the teacher, which is the reverse of how we do things. Now the uh, students are just sitting there listening and the teachers are doing all the work, which is why the the profession is so exhausting at the moment. It's actually, if you're a project-based learning teacher, it's not exhausting. So when you see all these reports of the great resignation among teachers, that does not include project-based learning teachers. They are generally creatively satisfied with what they're doing. And uh, they're doing it because they're facilitating the learning of others rather than direct instruction. So, the, But it does create a training issue, professional development issue. It's hard for school leaders to develop a cadre of people to do PBO. And I'll just say quickly, it's not necessary that project-based learning be done six hours a day, five days a week, nine months a year. It's only necessary really that students have a great project experience or hopefully several great project experiences throughout the school year. There are certain subjects that actually lend themselves to a little more traditional form of instruction and certain subjects that don't. So you try to be intelligent about it and, and pick those subjects that are very amenable to problem solving and open-ended inquiry rather than really fact-based
0: Mm, wonderful and so you also said during your presentation of your career and and your work to date and the projects that you're taking your work away from education and schools and you know looking at working with meaningful social impact projects so could you and you know your profile says you're a regeneration leader so how how does that does that all come together or not is it you know would you would you be able to to talk to that As in you know um first of all what do you mean by meaningful uh, social impact project and well yeah. if
1: i was designing education from the start right now and if i was looking at the state of the world uh with a climate emergency deep-rooted social issues such as refugees, immigration, uh, inequality, and wealth. Uh, Wherever we look, in whatever direction, we have intense challenges on the horizon. So if I was designing school from the start, I would focus maybe on about a year or two of fundamentals, and then I would do nothing but create projects based on sustainable development goals. And I would say there's 1.8 billion young people on the planet, and they're waiting to have an opportunity to do something, and they're not getting that opportunity in school. And so going outside of school right now is the only solution. It could be the other way around, but it's gonna take a long time to do that. So. And you can already see that the system is softening or even breaking down. It's the resignations. It's the, well, school enrollments are down. I don't know how it is in the UK and France, but in the US uh, enrollments are down. Micro schools, homeschooling, people are looking for different ways to do this, to engage their children uh, in a more realistic way and a meaningful way. So I think the, the weight, if we if we could put it this way, the weight of the curriculum needs to shift to problem solving, addressing meaningful contemporary issues that are going to determine whether we survive or not, rather than still focusing on, uh, you know, as I have worked in the UK, you're in the UK, and I remember talking to, you know, year five, year six teachers, and they were going crazy over having to teach, uh, you know, the 1066 issues and all the monuments and how many wars and armies from the kings and this and that. Got the same thing in Australia, got the same thing in the the US. You have a lot of historical stuff that is taught that could be learned later in books or other means, taking up valuable real estate time in school. And we need to turn that to more contemporary issues. So we need to let go of some of this curriculum. It's It's just overdone and not really that useful. Now there's nothing wrong with knowing something about history, but there's plenty of ways to learn about 1066 on your own. When you're 25 years old, you decide, oh, I'd like to know something about that.
0: <laughs> yes. And, and the, you know, what I'm hearing you say is that it's moving away from that uh, intellectual understanding and knowledge versus like more experiential uh, knowledge uh, with, with the project, and and I wonder whether you could talk to something that I've noticed a lot in you know in some of the the articles I read, and you know like recently Tony Blair was talking about scrapping GCSEs because they're obviously no good, um, and he was talking about preparing young people for the world of work, and so I wonder how potentially what you're describing, which is really amazing, like project-based learning, like having something that really interests you and trying to find a solution to very serious problems that we currently have, right, is very different from using it to prepare our, our kids for developing skills because we want them to work somehow that I find that much more jarring. I I don't know why it is jarring, like almost like because presumably you're preparing them to be the workforce and that's how you get your taxes. I don't know, there's something for me that feels really uncomfortable with this. So I would love you to talk to that if, if that's okay.
1: Well, I think you start working backwards from what the world of work requires these days and what it's looking for. Yes, it is looking for knowledgeable young people to work, but it's not, they, they don't even, I mean, for example, Google doesn't even ask you for a college degree anymore because they realize it doesn't give them what they want. The world of work is looking for performance and the performance these days is measured by your ability to, to be agile, to solve problems, to be flexible, to be to communicate well, to, to work with others well, to... Uh, Integrate yourself smoothly into team-based activities. Those are the kinds of rigorous activities. So the whole definition of rigor needs to change and is changing. So it's no longer your marks. It's no longer your grades. Most time, you I, I can't imagine going to employer these days. In most companies, in the last, what was your what was your grade point average? You know, it's just it just it's become immaterial. Um, it's even starting to become immaterial where you graduate from. Now I know it's still if you go to, if you go to Harvard or you go to Oxford, then of course it looks really good. But they're starting to investigate that, and uh, I just saw a study recently where they said they really ought to look at university in terms of return on investment. Is it really giving you outcomes that you want? And Harvard ranked very low. So there's other ways to get educated these days, and. The education is not based, as you're saying, necessarily on the traditional metrics for rigor, your grade point, your SATs in the States. It's really based on your performance, so we're developing other other measures of what it means to be rigorous as a human being. It's actually a more human-focused rigor rather than an external mark. And it's better because it really tells you, it it integrates who you are as a human being with how you perform in the world. So they're human-based skills because how you communicate with someone these days is based on, in a global world, is based on what I call your level of openness and cultural humility, your ability to really intersect with other people in in a humble way, to really learn from them. So those are people skills that are very deep but those are the kinds of skills that the workforce is looking for, which is why I think many companies are constantly complaining about the quality of graduates who are joining their companies.
0: And it's so. So what I'm hearing again, you know, forgive me, that's my subjectivity onto what you've just said. Um, it's a it's about knowing yourself, so like right, a deep understanding of oneself as a as an individual, but within a you know, a system and, you know, being of service to others and, and the planet and, and beyond, I guess, it's like through those projects, you presumably help foster a deeper understanding um, and becoming, you know, what Luca Parry talks about lifelong, you know, life, life wide and life deep, right? Is that what you're, you're all also- saying? Yeah,
1: that's right. I mean, it's too bad Socrates didn't have TikTok. He would have been a TikTok star. Know thyself. And you know it really. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, that is where we're headed. That personalization that's happening is about internal discovery these days. I mean, you see it everywhere you look ads, uh, media. It's all about knowing more about yourself. We are in a massive, massive, mindset shift about humanity in my mind, in which we are turning this corner towards exploring who we are and what we are. And this is coming to the fore and it's going to tremendously affect young people. Uh, I mean, we better better be ready for this because the kinds of challenges that are coming are going to draw upon deep wells of resiliency. They're gonna cause trauma in some young people And we're going to have to know personal pathways to stability and clarity. And that's going to be, that's a, that's a journey. And then in my own personal viewpoint, you know, what are we going to do when the first uh, UFOs actually appear? That's going to be, you know, and that might happen to our young people. If you're 10 years old today, by the time you're 60 or 70, who knows what you're going to be witnessing. I mean, this thing is exploding on us. So, that's gonna bring up another bit of a shock. So I don't think our current system of education is going to be able to withstand those kinds of impacts.
0: No, and I guess this is, for me, this is where I find that chaos. You know, I often say, when people say, oh, you know, why is it that our young people and to some extent we see mental health crisis in education, right, with young people. I always say to parents, I think it's really reassuring that your child is still reactive and saying, no, 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 I don't want to go to school and I don't like this. Because to me, like chaos is actually out of chaos. I know we've t- we talked about that the first time we spoke. So, you know, that to, to to reach that stability, the chaos is actually really useful, right? So would you, again, like share with us?
1: I think it's very useful because I think it's partly the way humans learn, but it's a very difficult lesson because chaos creates inherent instability and worry. So it's here, it's going to be a matter of how we learn to manage it. And I think one of the things, if I was, again, if I could uh, wave the magic wand on school, I would make sure that every 11th and 12th grader understood chaos theory and chaos and understood how systems change through chaos, because that's what's happening. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to figure out well why is it 110 degrees Fahrenheit one day in Europe, and the next day there's floods, <laughs> and that's happening all over the world. By the way, you know that kind of like one day it's up, one day it's down, and we're, we're going to get more of that because weather is now in a chaotic uh, mathematical pattern. It's it's clear. It's it's out. It's not not following traditional patterns
0: and so. so do you feel that perhaps that's what we, we if the schools are not teaching that to our kids <laughs> uh that's
1: uh, that's a leading question fabian yeah no they're not they they teach what's what is or what they think is not mm-hmm. what's coming they're not very they're not really oriented towards future studies in school they're in they're interested in the the curriculum of the past, or when I say the past, I don't mean just history. I mean, you know, mathematics as it is. You're still learning. If you go to if you go to secondary school, you're still learning in physics, Newton's laws. Well, Newton's laws only don't really apply to the universe anymore. I mean, they apply to everyday life. If you drop a drop something, it goes to the floor. But if you want to understand, uh, the actual environment you're living in, then you have to you have to go to the current science, which is quantum science, and understand that. So I would like to see every young person get a good lesson in relativity. I mean, you've got to sort of start to fast forward this curriculum into the world.
0: Yes. And I keep wondering, I read somewhere, I can't remember who the author was, but they asked the question, what would have happened if Newton, Young Newton... When the apple fell, had pondered about how this apple had landed on him, as in what it had taken for um, for the apple to be there. You know, the sun, the you know, the interconnectedness of all of the elements, right? Rather than just you know, would we have a different type of science and a, an approach in life? Um,
1: we may have, I mean, what we know now is the apple doesn't really fall. It's pushed down by the force of gravity. And that's something most those, those people don't understand. They did a survey of physics graduates from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology a few years back. They didn't even understand that. So <laughs> that, yeah, it's a force of gravity. It's being pushed down by space-time. So anyway, we won't get into physics too deeply. I'm just saying the idea is that you know, to some extent, young people before the age of 18 ought to be exposed to the fact that this is a changing chaotic world with a different, some different forms of science from uh, they ought to be up to date on the biology rather than just doing the water cycle, which is what they do in school. Mostly they learn. the. I mean, these are basics and in some way you need to learn the basics, but I'd like to see opportunities for more cutting edge stuff, which I think kids are dying for.
0: Yes, and
1: you te- well, you talk to many teachers. Say, oh no, they wouldn't learn that, but I think they would.
0: If yeah, they and particularly if, if you're you're offering them the, the what you described before, you know, a project that is exciting and, and enables them to tap into their creativity and all of those. Um, it, I, I would imagine they would be really alive, like you said, and really wanting to be part of of this.
1: I think one of the, if we had to sort of summarize the gap in schools these days, at least as I would summarize it, is that young people don't have any purpose other than to go to work and earn money or to become a social media star or become go into sports. They don't have a purpose. And yet we are on the, have entered this age in which this earth has to basically rediscover its purpose and why we're here and why, you know, what's happening. And uh, there's just all sorts of interesting developments out there that young people should know which would at least say oh my gosh I've got to ask some questions about this and once yes. you start asking questions you can find some purpose
0: yes that curiosity and uh, yeah why am I here and <laughs> yeah
1: I, I mean it sounds a little uh, out there but honestly we're in this period uh it's an amazing period to be alive in in which many core questions are coming uh they're coming those core the core is coming to the fore let's put it that way
0: (laughs) yeah i love that so tom if parents are really interested or you know teachers who listen to podcasts are really interested in this uh, and even young people in what we've discussed so far what would be one book that you would really recommend they go and read
1: when I publish my book, that's the book I'm going to recommend to them. I'm sorry. that You know, I think there needs to be a different kind of book about education. So, I'm not going to recommend any of those. I mean, they're all, there's a lot of good ones out there, but most of them are about tinkering with the system. And I don't think tinkering with the system is going to be the answer. I'm not a tinker. I'm a disruptor. And uh, I think we need to disrupt. And that's what I think if parents really want to be thoughtful about their kids and and what's coming. They need to be thinking about this future, not getting into the university, not getting the right degree. Stop worrying so much about grades. Start looking at their young people in uh, individual personalized terms. We have, that's another thing. We've got an incredibly neurodiverse world that's forming up. And we need to learn that neurodiversity is simply a sign of the times, not a sign of Trauma or ill health or even uh, disability, because what we're calling disabilities these days, for example, in terms of ADHD, is not a disability in most cases. It's simply uh, an inability to focus on things that don't matter.
0: Yeah. So that the, the yeah. mind
1: is roaming. So uh, we got to figure out a way to harness all these energies that we've got now into sort of a, what I call collective genius.
0: Yes, and so
1: I'm sorry I don't have a book for no, you.
0: No, 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 That's good. That's good. That's a really that's a very good answer. And you know what? Maybe Tom, you'll you can come when your book is published, you can yeah. come and, and talk to us what you know I lo- again. I would love I would love to do that. The book. Yes, absolutely. Um, so when I sort of wrap up a conversation with my guest, I always ask them, What's the one thing that you think from this conversation you would want our guests or like our sorry listeners to take away or what, is there one thing that I haven't asked you that you would want us to explore and discuss
1: the one thing I would take away that's on my mind Fabian is uh, I've sort of alluded to this in the in the talk so far but I would really emphasize this letting go of the traditional standard model of education the standard pathway the standard uh, supposition that, well, if you just get through with a high school diploma or a good uh, score on the tests, and then you get into a good university, that all will be fine. It won't be fine. You've got to think about the personal capabilities of your children and how you can best develop those. And by that, one way to do that is to honor who they are as individuals rather than Asking them to fit into the system. So I think that's my takeaway.
0: Yes, absolutely., yeah, so, 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 yes, a big yes for me as well. I <laughs> love that. Um, so you said we we need disruptors, not tinkers on on the side. I also really love that. If there are more disruptors who or maybe people who don't know the disruptors, but in within there's that. Hmm, that sounds really interesting and they like the sounds of your work your book the you know the bio youth all of those things how do they reach you how can they can get in contact with you
1: well they're certainly uh they can contact me i'm very open to being contacted it's uh should i put it in the chat or do you want to put
0: i'll put it if you if you know, I can uh, if she sends me the, all the details. Yeah, I can it's, it's Tom home.
1: at PBL Global and I'm THOM at PBLlobal.com. So I'm, I take inquiries and, I'm, and I do coaching, individually Zoom coaching with people, schools, uh, all over the world. That's a big way I work. So I'm available to talk with people. Uh, I do have a book called Redefining Smart, which is a really good which is out already. That's a really good way of thinking about what schools can do. Uh, Allowing Genius is sort of the next step, but Redefining Smart is a very good book published about three years ago. Um, And then look for schools that uh, are are at least uh, trying to do project-based learning. That would be one of my questions to the headmaster or to the principal when when you apply. Are you doing some project-based learning? Are you doing design thinking? Are you doing inquiry? How meaningful is that in your curriculum? I would really be asking, uh, I would be asking your schools what? they're offering to your children
0: amazing thank you so much tom i could talk to you for hours and i really truly really, really love to talk to you when your your second book is published because i think that uh, thank you it's been a
1: pleasure fabian good questions good discussion
0: yeah thank you so much for, for your time today
1: all right you're welcome and uh, we'll talk again thanks so much for having me
0: thank you you've enjoyed this episode. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with me with any comments or questions you may have. You can find me on Twitter at Flourishing HE or on LinkedIn at Fabienne Vales. Please also like this podcast as it's helping me promote it and don't hesitate to share it widely with your friends and family. Thank you so much for listening and for your support.